Well, for those of you who may not know, uh, my name is Derek, and I am the family and discipleship pastor here at Fellowship of Grace. Pastor, pastor Michael, our lead pastor, is on vacation this week, taking a well-deserved break, and I'm happy to uh, help him uh, just to do that for him. And, uh, you know, he, he works very hard, and, and so um, if you get a chance uh, this week or next week when you see him, just to tell him how much you appreciate him and all that he does for our church, I know uh, that means a lot to him. So, like I said, we're going to be continuing on uh, through our series in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 21 is where we'll find ourselves today. And it's the, basically the continuing narrative of Paul and his journeys, and he's going to be making his way to Jerusalem. Before we start to, to read, I want to start off by, by telling you a story about a guy named Joe, because most random stories are just about a guy named Joe. But, but Joe, was, he just started a, a new diet. I uh, was looking to get pretty healthy, and so... He had even gone to the lengths of altering his drive to work, all right? So he used to drive by this bakery. It was just a big temptation for him, and he would always stop in and get more than he uh, should eat and get some donuts and pastries, that sort of thing. So he'd been driving a different way to work over the last few weeks, and one morning he accidentally took the old way and was passing the bakery, and as he was approaching approaching it, he, he he just thought, okay, I'm just going to pray, and I really want to know God's will for me in this situation. I, I don't think it's by accident that I just made this mistake. So God, he prayed, if it's your will, just open up a parking spot right there in front of the bakery. If it's wide open, I know that it is your will for me to do. So sure enough, after eight times around the block, God revealed his will to, to Joe, and Joe knew that without a doubt it was God's will for him to, to get a donut that day. So, so, you know, when we think about the will of God and God's will, sometimes it seems a little elusive to us. You know, I, I think sometimes we do some crazy things like driving around the block eight times or whatever it might be to try to figure out what God wants us to do, what God, what God has for us, what, what his plan for our lives is. And um, as we look at Paul and as his, his journeys into Jerusalem and some of the things that happen as he arrives there, I want us to kind of look at his example and just kind of have it help and maybe initiate this conversation of God's will uh, for our lives and see how, how Paul really lives with a confidence of knowing what he's doing is what God wants him to do. And, and he just seems very confident in it. Uh, I think this morning, hopefully we can learn a few things that will begin to shape our thinking about this idea because I think it's something a lot of us struggle with. Like, you know, there, it seems like option A and option B both have their pros and cons, and we've already, you know, gotten the whiteboard out and listed the positives and negatives, but I don't know what God wants me to do, so I'm just going to, you know, we've got to figure it out. How, you know, we, we all go through that with certain things, um, but this morning we're going to talk a little bit about that in the context of this, this chapter and this story um, to kind of catch you up. I know we had taken a week off last week for Father's Day, but the week before that we had seen Paul on his way to Jerusalem. He had stopped to uh, talk with the Ephesian elders, uh, people that he had spent a couple years with, kind of building up that church and discipling people in that area, and giving them kind of his final charge to them. He's basically saying, I'm not going to see you guys again, but I, these are the things I want you to remember, uh, to, to stay the course, and, and to continue faithfully in service to Christ, um, and continuing on in Paul's journey, even though it hurts to say goodbye to these people that he loves, he, he knows he's supposed to get to Jerusalem, so he says kind of that gospel goodbye that Pastor Michael talked about and continued to, to follow the will of God. And we're going to kind of pick that up and continue it even in the beginning of this, 
chapter. Uh, the first point we see uh, over these first few verses is that against the will of his closest companions, Paul continues or remains steadfast in his journey towards Jerusalem. So the, the first few verses, we're not going to read them uh, here this morning, but basically it's just kind of chronicling their journey, their island hopping across the, the Mediterranean Sea, trying to get closer to Jerusalem, and, and they end up in the city of Tyre. Stay there for a few days, and this is where verse 4 picks up. We, we read together here, verse, uh, verse 4. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there in the city of Tyre for, a, for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So, at first glance, this, this verse can be kind of confusing. It says, And through the Spirit, they, meaning the disciples there, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So, was the Holy Spirit speaking through the disciples, telling Paul not to go, but Paul is still going? Is Paul going against the Holy Spirit here? Um, when you look at it in the context, and, and obviously other parts of Acts, this is uh, most likely not what's happening. Uh, we see that the, God was leading Paul to Jerusalem, and that really what, was, what most likely happened was, was the Holy Spirit had revealed to these disciples what Paul was in for, what, what he was going to expect when he got to Jerusalem. And so out of love for Paul, they're like, dude, you just don't go. It's going to be bad for you. We, you know, the Holy Spirit's revealed to us some things. We'd really prefer you just stay here, be safe, and that sort of thing. But Paul, um, he, he continues on his journey, and we, he says some more gospel goodbyes and packs up, leaves the city of Tyre, travels down a little bit f- further south, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And we pick it up in verse 7 now as, as he uh, gets to Ptolemaeus. It says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews well, went too fast there. And Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, "What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So kind of this continued uh, story, the same, same idea is happening over and over where people are really encouraging, imploring Paul not to go. Um, this, this prophet Agabus has come and basically said, um, you know, Paul, the Holy Spirit's showing me, I'm prophesying to you by taking your belt and wrapping my own hands and my feet. This is, this is what's gonna happen to the man who owns this belt. So basically telling Paul again, showing him visually, what he can expect when he gets to Jerusalem. But we note there Paul's response. He says, guys, I'm not, I'm not just willing to be imprisoned and be chained up, but I'm willing to die for the sake of Jesus. I'm willing to die for Jesus. So we see Luke, 
the author of this book who says, you know, we implored. He was with this group that was with Paul saying, Paul, don't go, don't go. He said, we just, we, we said, let the will of the Lord be done. And they kind of, um, in a sense, gave up. This was their last ditch effort to try to keep Paul from going there to um, basically, you know, Paul's getting, trying to get to Jerusalem to um, give this offering that he's collected from all the different churches and all these different leaders of the churches in the Gentile world uh, were, were giving to the poor there in Jerusalem through the, through the church leaders. And, and Paul really wanted to, to be there and to give that to them and, and to proclaim the gospel even further uh, in Jerusalem. So, so they said, let the will of the Lord be done. And I want to just take a few moments and kind of unpack this idea of what the will of the Lord, what are, what are they really talking about? When we, when we talk about the will of God, most often we talk, think about, you know, what does God want me to do in a certain decision? What, what, I'm searching for God's will about what job to take. I'm, I'm searching for God's will about who to marry. I'm searching for God's will about these sorts of things. And really in scripture, um, it, there's two big, two big kind of categories of God's will. And I'm going to kind of break out a diagram for you, or at least some circles, so you can flip your page over if you want to draw these. If you're a visual learner, this might help you. Um, If not, then you can just look at it on the screen. Um, But basically, the two big categories are this. The first one is God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will. Now, this is defined as God's secret plan that determines everything that happens in the universe, all right? So this is God's secret plan. It's secret because we don't know exactly every little thing that's gonna happen in the future. God knows, um, and, and it's under his sovereignty and under his, his plan. Um, but this, this circle that you see here, it basically it encompasses all that will actually take place, all actions and events that take place under God's sovereign will. So this is the big, big picture thing. The other category that we see in scripture is, is God's moral will. And this happens within God's sovereign will, but this is defined as God's revealed commands in the Bible that teach how men ought to believe and live. So God's moral will is what God has revealed to us in Scripture that, that teach us as humanity how to believe and how to live. Now, when we see the, the diagram of God's sovereign will and God's moral will, uh, we see that inside of the, the moral will circle, all of these decisions and actions are moral. They are good. They are right. They, they are pure. This is, this is what, what God wants to happen. And then everything outside of that, the orange kind of ring outside of God's moral will that's still within God's sovereign will, those are all actions that are, that are sinful, or, or wrong. And not only will this kind of help us in our framework of thinking about what, you know, the age-old question of, you know, why do, why do good things happen, or why do bad things happen when, when God is good and on the throne? Like, why, if God's in charge, but there's these horrible atrocities and, and tragedies happen in our, happening in our world today, how, how, do we, how do we kind of reconcile that? Well, in, in, when we see this when, under these two things, there are certain things, sinful actions even, that are permitted inside of God's sovereign will, but that are outside of God's moral will. Hopefully that, that makes sense to you um, as you think about that. Um, and what we see here, uh, as we kind of try to dial it down even more, so th- these are the two big things, but we see kind of two, um, two viewpoints that 
when you, when you draw it into personal application. So, so what does this mean for me when I make decisions? How do I know God's will for my life? Um, we see two viewpoints, and I want to kind of go through both of these together. Now, the first one is the traditional view, and as I explain both, both of these, um, I'll admit, like, I'm not, like, an expert on these things, and I think even if you had to corner me into landing in one of these two areas, I think both of them may, may have some faults here and there, but they, they both have different, people use di- different scriptures to support both, and it's kind of good to just wrestle with and, and think about. But this traditional view of God's individual will would say this, that inside of God's moral will, okay, inside that blue circle, there is an individual will right in the center of that. It's kind of, kind of your sweet spot, all right? That, this is exactly where God wants you to be. It's his ideal, detailed, you know, step-by-step life plan that's uniquely designed for each person. God's individual will. Um, and this is uh, traditionally how, how people have tried to communicate or, or understand uh, what God wants them to do. Now, on the other side, there's another, another viewpoint, and this is what we'll call either the freedom view, sometimes it's called the wisdom view, um, and it starts with the same place. So within God's moral will, um, you know, God wants you, anything God would want you to do is not sinful, so it's within his moral will, but within God's moral will, there, there is this area of freedom and responsibility. All right, so, so there's this area. It's not necessarily a specific point, um, but it's, it's a, an area. So maybe there are two right decisions, and, and the, you know, each one of them, in a sense, whichever one you choose is God's will for you through the um, wisdom that he has provided you and the freedom that he has given you. So in this view, decisions are, God-honoring decisions are, are made with God-given freedom. Now, I know this could, we can get really down into the weeds really quick, and I'm going to try really hard not to because, you, you know, our heads can start spinning and being like, okay, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? What about that? Um, and so if you feel like you're getting there, you know, maybe try to write out a question you might have or something like that, and, and we can, uh, you can put it on the back of your connection card, and we can try to address it during the week. We don't have time to unpack it in a lot of detail. But, but this view, this freedom view or wisdom view, I, I think has... Um, some good things for us to think about as we try to explore maybe what God wants us to do. If you're a believer in here, I think it is a, a noble thing. It is a good thing to really want and desire to do God's will for your life. I mean, if he is truly our Lord and Savior, we should kind of want to know what he thinks, and we should want to know what to do and how to live. Um, but there's a few, a few kind of principles for decision-making under this, this view, this freedom or wisdom view. All right, so within this area of freedom and responsibility, where, where God commands something, you must obey it. In Scripture, we have a lot of different commands, the Ten Commandments. We have many commands in the New Testament um, in a lot of different ways. To, we, we know God's character. We know what he, we know what he loves. We know what um, kind of he is for, what he is against. And, and we do these things because God commands them, and we must obey them. Now, where there is no specific command, about many of the decisions that we make in our lives, in our daily lives, God gives us freedom. And when there is no command, God gives us the wisdom to choose. So he gives us not only the freedom to choose, but also the wisdom to choose. And then once that decision that, that we have made, that wise and moral decision, we must trust the sovereignty of God and the sovereign God to work all of the details together for good. 
Okay, so this it's kind of, in some ways, frees you up to, to, to make decisions. I think each of these viewpoints, the traditional view and the, the freedom view, have their, their faults or that you can take them to the extreme and say, okay, the, in the, within the freedom view, well, as long as I'm not sinning, I'm within God's moral will, I don't, I don't have to you know, seek out God's, the Holy Spirit. I, I don't have to listen to the Holy Spirit because I can just make decisions as long as I'm not sinning. Well, that, that's kind of an extreme view, and we don't really see that in Scripture when we see what kind of guidance and leading the Holy Spirit gives us. But on the other side, you've got the individual will of God. It, you know, People could take that to the extreme and say, okay, unless, unless my Bible like, falls open to the page when I just thumb through it, close my eyes and thumb through it, and God shows me specifically exactly what to do in this situation or writes it in a, in a cloud in the sky or some other sort of, verification, we, we, we kind of have, could be like kind of paralyzed spiritually because we're not making any choices because we don't know what God wants us to do. And we, we, we're not 100% sure that we're making the right choice. And so there's those two extremes, but I, I think we're probably, we probably need to be somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, if, if, if you are kind of going with this freedom view, if, if you're making a decision that's within the bounds of God's moral will, it's a good, good choice. It's not prohibited directly by scripture. Then, then with that freedom you have to, to choose. You don't have to feel guilty. Oh, you know, I, this was the 95% right choice and not the 100% right choice. Like you don't have to feel guilty because you, you may have chosen the wrong one. Um, but you've, you've acted upon the, the freedom that God has granted you and, and God is not disappointed that you chose the wrong one. Um, but and he, you can trust that he is in the process of, of working all those things out. I, I think, you know, just a little example of maybe how these two things would play out. Uh, my wife and I are in the process of, of looking for a new house, um, selling our house and looking for a new house. And as we look for a new house, it, you know, we, we're wrestling with uh, what God wants us to do. You know, what, what does God want, to, want us to do? Does, which house does he want us to buy? And so from the kind of individual traditional view, um, God has this perfect house or has, has a house that is perfectly designed for us. And, and that is the house that we need to, to find, and, and I know, like in God's sovereignty, you, even whatever house we choose, He, he knows what we're going to choose and that sort of thing. But from what, kind of from our perspective, there's this house that that we need to buy, and we need to to figure out what house that is. And, and by by prayer, seeking, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of good things we can do to to help kind of find out where that house is. Um, but but there is this this one house now. In the freedom view, maybe there's several different options that we have, all that within the framework of God's moral will, within the framework of, of kind of how God has wired us, what, what he, how um, our, our motives are, are kind of inclined to, to use our, our house for, for kingdom purposes, how we can advance the, the mission and make disciples, all those sorts of things. Maybe there's several different options and all of them could fulfill those things and, and we have the kind of confidence or the freedom to, to make a choice and get a house and then allow, trust God to work all the details of that out and, and trust that it's the right decision. So that's kind of, you know, one decision. And I know it's a big life decision um, of where to live, where, you know, it's a lot of money. Um, one thing about the traditional view that sometimes people get, um, str- or they struggle with, and I know I have too, you know, a lot of, when you go to the store, you don't probably um, stand in front of the, the toothpaste aisle and pray to, to whether to get Colgate or Crest toothpaste, right? We, you don't, you, we, don't, we just make those decisions. We, we just do them. But like in a, in a, if we're buying a house, I mean, this is a big decision that, that we pray and seek God over and, 
and want him to, you know, obviously the consequences are bigger and all that sort of thing, but there's kind of, we, we kind of in our minds draw this arbitrary line of, okay, these are kind of ordinary decisions that I have freedom to choose and don't really have to seek God's guidance on. You know, where, where I'm going to go to eat today for lunch or, you know, all these different things. But if it's a big decision, who, who I'm going to marry, you know, what, where my kids are going to go to school, all these kinds of things, those are the important decisions that, that God is really concerned about. But, but God really, he cares about everything. And so when we, when we kind of view it that way, we, we should be, in a sense, seeking God even in the small decisions. But, I mean, I, I understand I'm not advocating that you have to pray every time you go and buy toothpaste at the store or anything like that. But th- this decision, if you're under the freedom, you, you, have, you have this opportunity to, to really seek God in, in all areas. And really, the, the primary way you do this um, Romans 12.2 is just a great verse that I think helps shed light on, on this kind of difficult topic to wrestle with. Uh, um, but let's, let's read this together. Romans 12.2, it says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so it kind of tells us how we discern the will of God. Um, we, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, how do we renew our minds? Well, in Christ, we are a new creation, and we basically continually become what we already are. We, we renew ourselves, and we do that by um, the, the most basic way, the most probably important way, is, is through the Scripture, through, through knowing, knowing God, through knowing his will for our life, through, through the Scripture. And when it talks about God's will in this verse, it, it really is talking about God's moral will. All right, So the, not necessarily an individual will for your life, but what is good and acceptable and perfect, um, it's talking about God's moral will, the laws that he has spelled out in Scripture for us. So um, I think it, in some ways we're, you know, we're treading on thin ice if we try to take this down to the daily decisions that we have to make about our, our personal will, um, if that makes any sense. Hopefully it does. Um, but this is a good, you know, a good discussion to have. I, I'm a, I think... Like I said, you can get really detailed, and it probably, I know for me, it just brings a lot of questions to mind about every single situation, so we not, uh, what is the role of the Holy Spirit play, and all these sorts of things that are important, and we don't have time to kind of dive into it all today, but kind of just whet your appetite a little bit for it. With that all said, I, I think, you know, most of the time, uh, we, we just, we want to know so bad what God wants us to do, when all God really, really wants for us is for us to know him, and and that will solve a lot of our kind of anxiety, our um, nervousness about knowing what God wants us to do is, is to really know God. He, God's more concerned with our character than, than our conduct. Um, not that he doesn't care what we do, but he knows that out of our heart, out of, out of our conduct, um, will, our, our con, or out of our character, our conduct will flow. He's more concerned about a transformed heart than he is about just kind of simple behavior modification. He knows that a transformed heart will cause us to act, to live, to think differently. So I would encourage you to, to get in the word, uh, to get to know God, um, and make that really your priority, um, and, and let the other, other things, maybe about specific uh, things, kind of fall where they may. I know that's easier said than done with a lot of, a lot of things we have to do, but trust God, get to know him, get to know, uh, and, and be in community with fellow believers. Uh, it's a great, great start. So let, let's jump back into Acts real quick and continue on. Uh, we, we see Paul arriving in Jerusalem in verse 17. So 
Let's read these few verses. It says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So Paul has come to Jerusalem. Arriving in Jerusalem, Paul shares stories from his ministry among the Gentiles with James and the elders. So a couple things to note. James and the elders are, are, are the people that Paul is with. Uh, we, we don't see the apostles uh, on the scene right now. Um, this is as the book of Acts progresses, the apostles are mentioned less and less. Pastor Michael has kind of given us the warning, forewarning of that. And in this case, the, the apostles, you know, most commentaries and things will say that the apostles are out on missionary journeys. They're, they're taking Acts 1-8, that challenge. They're finally taking it serious and getting out of Jerusalem and going to, to spread the word. Um, but, but we see the elders really taking more responsibility and care for the, the church there in Jerusalem. And this is probably the first time they're hearing about a lot of these things. You know, they, they didn't have social media back then, Facebook, and they weren't getting Instagram updates from Paul about every city that he went through. And, and so these are, the, these are the first time they're hearing about some of these things that um, have happened over the last you know, number of years that Paul has been on these missionary journeys. And what was their reaction? Well, we see they, if you remember, they, they glorified God. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They didn't uh, give Paul all the credit. They didn't say what a great man he was or um, you know, how great their strategy was, in a sense, to, to go to all these cities. They, they knew where the credit was due, and they gave it to him. And so I think, even in this case, to, to learn from Paul about, uh, you know, I think about our church, as we, you know, some of you have been here, maybe this is your first time, or you've been here 10 years, we're going to celebrate our 10-year anniversary, and a lot of different things have happened over the, in the past, and, and as we celebrate some of those things, we want to always be careful that, that God receives the glory. Just like when Paul recounts these, he gives these testimonies, uh, we always want to make sure that we tell our stories in a way, and this is a good thing even for us as we share our testimony with people, that we're not the main character, like we're not the one that looks awesome and comes out looking the greatest, so they're like, wow, what a you're a really special person. Like, no, they, they come out and, and say, wow, that, you, you serve a great God. That, that is amazing. And there's ways that we can do that. I think Paul, um, it doesn't say exactly what he did, if he had a PowerPoint or whatever, how he showed all these things that had happened. Um, but I think there, there are definitely ways that we can make sure that God is the focus of our, story, of our stories. So let's continue on after this testimony time that Paul had given to the elders we see in the second half of verse 20, um, see the, kind of their response after they give God glory. Um, and they said to him, You see, bro- brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And so that's referring back to Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where they decide basically, okay, you don't have to become Jew 
to become a Christ follower. And they sent out this letter, so they're reminding Paul about that here. So then we see Paul's reaction to this request from them. It says, he took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. So, Paul shares his stories. The, the church leaders there, James and the elders, say, well, God, get the glory. To, to God be the glory, the great things that have been happening, and then they say, well, uh, but there's this other thing going on. There's a bunch of Jews here in Jerusalem that don't like you, Paul, because they think you're telling people they have to stop becoming Jews completely, become un-Jewish before they can follow Christ. Now, it's kind of easy to understand how they were thinking, how they could have come to this conclusion. Uh, This wasn't what Paul was teaching. Uh, He was teaching a a law-free gospel in a sense that you don't come to salvation through the law, you come by grace and f- through faith alone. Um, but basically, uh, they, they are pretty ticked at Paul. So the, the church leaders are like, okay, what do we do? Um, Paul's here. He's on our team, but they think he's on the other team. Well, how can we get, make sure to, that they can think he's on our team? In a sense, we'll all be on the same page. So they're like, well, participate in this vow, this Nazarite vow of kind of purification and things. And when you do this publicly, people are going to say, okay, so he's not like anti-Jewish. He's still doing some of the Jewish laws and that sort of thing. And Paul goes along with it. And I think that says a lot about Paul. It's probably not surprising from what we've already seen um, and throughout the book of Acts. But Paul, his main focus was to remove any barriers that would prevent the gospel from being proclaimed forth or any of the kind of secondary things that would prevent somebody or kind of put up a blockade or a barrier to, to him preaching the gospel, to, to them hearing it. So he goes along with it and, and basically uh, says, okay, I, I understand that doing these things is not going to save me. He, he understood the law in its proper context and, and all those sorts of things. So he, he does that, and then we see kind of the, the response uh, of the people. Let's see if it, if it worked, if it kind of got them all on the same team and they, they accepted Paul. We'll see pretty quickly what happens. And this is the number three. At the request of the elders, Paul participates in a Nazarite vow. And we'll pick back up here as our last point in verse 27. Starts out like this. When the seven days were almost completed, the, the days of purification, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere, pretty general statement there, uh, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him also into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as you can see, it's not going very well so far. Um, And as they were seeking to kill him, getting even worse, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul, him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob 
uh, of people followed, crying out, away with him, away with him. All right, so kind of a eerily similar scene to what we see with Jesus uh, and, and kind of the, the crowd's reaction to him as, as they shouted, crucify him before Jesus' death. Uh, so the same thing is kind of happening, that they uh, accuse Paul of bringing a, a Gentile, a Greek, into the temple, into the inner courts, which was uh, forbidden and it resulted in the death penalty because just because they had seen another uh, Gentile in another part of the city with Paul. And so they bring up these false accusations and amidst false charges, Paul is, is arrested in the temple. Um, I think it's important for us to just seek Paul's continued obedience. We'll see next week uh, in the next chapter, Paul's response to this. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes wonder how Paul's reacting to all these things because you know, he's been told over and over and over, the Holy Spirit's revealed to him what's going to happen. So I wonder if he was just kind of entering the temple, like looking around going, okay, where's, where's it going to come from? Who's going to be the first one to start yelling at me and where are the rock's going to come? And he's being beaten. Um, and, and so, but he, he's ready and delivers a, a sermon next week uh, in the next chapter that, that is pretty profound. So a lot of things we can learn from, from Paul in this. And, and as we to the idea of the will of God, and you know, as we um, think about that and wrestle with that individually, I, I, was, I was really convicted even this week and even last night as I was, I was traveling back from the St. Louis area of my wife's family and thinking about some of these things of, how to how to talk about them, and even when I'm not sure I 100% understand it, and how do I explain that, and and all these sorts of things. And I came across this quote this week, and I I was really really convicted by it, and I wanted to share it. Um, but it said this: It says most people don't want to know the will of God in order to do it; they just want to know the will of God in order to consider it. And that really hit me. Like it's like, yeah, that's. If I was really honest, that's most of the time why I want to know what God wants me to do. You know, I, it's not, my, my yes isn't on the table for God to tell me what to do. It's kind of like, I got my yes, I'm ready to say yes, unless it's something I don't want to do. You know, I, I really want to know what God wants me to do so that I can, you know, most of the time, maybe I can do like 95% of it and feel really good. You know, I'm almost doing God's will, but, I, you know, as I begin to think about it, it's just, it's just so... It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if, if we are who we say we are, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is our Lord and Savior, and we, you know, we sing songs like, my heart is yours, take it all, take it all, my heart is yours. Is it really, is it really his, or are we really holding on to it? When we look at Paul and how he, he reacted, how he acted, and just his example throughout the entire book of, of Acts amidst persecution, um, beatings, stonings. He, he, was, um, he just suffered a lot, but he, he always remained steadfast. He remained um, confident in knowing that this was God's will for him. And I, I just want us to, to think about today uh, how, how we can learn from that. Um, you know, if you are here today, maybe you do not have a relationship with, with Christ I can say with confidence that, that I know what God's will is for you. You know, that's, that's one place that, that we, we don't have to wrestle with that at all. We, we, God's will for you is to come to know him and to receive the free gift of salvation through his son Jesus. And I would encourage you to do that if, if you have questions about that or, you know, all this stuff is just kind of confusing to you. Um, feel free to check that box on the back of your connection card. Turn that in before you leave today. 
And we'd be happy to, to talk about that and um, really uh, the most important decision uh, you'll ever make uh, in your lifetime. And then for, for most of you here that, that maybe have, uh, that are really truly trying to seek God's will for your life, that are um, followers of Jesus, you know, none of us are perfect. We all, we all mess up. Um, I, I want to just encourage you to, to really think about what it would look like for, for you to leave your yes, your answer to God's will, that yes on the table and, and seek God with your whole heart and, and, and trust him with, with where he leads you, where he guides you. Um, you know, I, I began to think like what it would look like for our church as a whole to just be a people that didn't just want to know God's will, to consider it, consider the options, weigh the pros and cons of, of wanting to know what God wants us to do, but, but really wanting to know God's will in order to, to act, to, to do it, and to make decisions. I, I think it, we could be a people that um, really could uh, move forward with confidence, make decisions, be bold witnesses. I mean, there's so much in Scripture that we know what God wants us to do. And so often we get concerned with the little pieces. But if we started to fulfill even just the, you know, one of our church's mission is to make disciples, make disciples of all nations. And if we intentionally thought about, okay, that's, I know God's will for me is to make disciples. If you're a Christian, I, want to, I need to make disciples. Like, how do I do that? Like, think there's a lot of different ways you can do that, uh, the way God's wired you. And we've talked about shape. And I think God put, you know, kind of created us all with different, interests, different abilities, different spiritual gifts, and, and he has a place for each of us. And, and I, I just, my prayer is that, that we can really um, each uh, find that, each seek it out, each um, kind of deepen our, our relationship with Christ in a sense and not become obsessed with exactly what God wants us to do, but to take the things we know from scripture that God wants us to do and just apply them in our daily lives, you know, and, and it may be sometimes we, we trust God and his sovereignty that he works it out for his good, um, but to, to move forward with confidence and to know that uh, you, you are in his will and that he, he wants to use you in, in a great way. So think about that and let, let's pray together as we close. Father God, we uh, come to you this morning and, and do thank you for your word. We thank you for just the ability we have to to know an infinite God, to talk about you. God, even though there are some things um, under your sovereignty and under your will that, that we don't understand, we, we, we acknowledge that we can't because we aren't God. We aren't you. Um, but help us to, to really take serious the things that we, we do understand, the intentional about the way we, we treat the Bible and the way we study it, the way we memorize, uh, just the seriousness with which we, we take your word, um, God, and help us to, to, to know it and to, to apply it. And God, as we oftentimes think about what you want us to do in our lives, God, I pray that um, we would be more concerned about uh, who we are in you and not necessarily what we do for you, that our identity is truly found in that and, and that the rest of our, our actions and things um, can flow out of the transformation that has uh, taken place inside of us through your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.